my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, October 12th, 2011. It's Christmas in October for all of you uh, iOS users out there. <laughs> Always love it when Apple releases something new. It makes my day. <sighs> we nerds have to have something to look forward to. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Yeah, there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and uh, the idea here is, is that uh, God has actually revealed a lot, a lot in His Word. And that is what we're to be listening to and trusting when it comes to assertions being made about God. I I can know that what the Bible reveals is true because Jesus Christ put his stamp of approval on it and proved his credentials to being God in human flesh by raising himself from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So, you know, as far as objective objectifying whether or not the claims in scripture are true. Yeah, I, I'm putting all the blue chips on Jesus. And I think there's good reason for everybody to do the same. But uh, the idea is, is that in the Christian church, this shouldn't even be um, uh, controversial. Uh, those who claim to be Christians, those who teach in Christian churches, this is exactly what the, their position ought to be as well and what they ought to be doing. Unfortunately, in our day, there's a lot of weird, alien, foreign to Scripture 
practices and teaching being smuggled into the church and claims being made about God, who he is, what he expects from us, and uh, things of that nature that just don't jive with the biblical text. And so this is a program that on a daily basis takes a look at what's being said out there, and we we do the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, some people have described this program as the what not to wear for, uh, for theology. Uh, <laughs> you were thinking about, uh, if I could do a, a television program, it might be something along the lines of giving somebody a theological makeover. <laughs> you know, it's like, Okay, so you got your person coming in and, and, oh, wow. Okay, so let me see here. You got a little bit of New Age mysticism. You got some, uh, you got some seeker driven things going on. And every time you read the Bible, you say things like, what does this passage mean to me? Oh, come with me. We're going to clean you right up. We're, we're going to give you a few confessions, some good creeds and some solid biblical catechism. And at the end of it, you won't be saying some of the silly things that you're saying right now. Anyway. You get the idea. So today, what we're going to be doing on uh, Fighting for the Faith is that we're going to be, uh, well, I'm going to be invoking our uh, light edition for the day and uh, for the week. Once a week, what I like to do is uh, play a good lecture to uh, put you in the hands of guys that are experts, if you would, uh, on uh, in their field uh, regarding particular topics. And normally, if I would be turning, the, uh, turning you over to uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, it would have something to do with uh, apologetics, but he's currently in the middle of teaching a series uh, walking through Luther's commentary on the epistle to the Galatians. And uh, this, so what we're going to do, we've listened to two of those lectures already on fighting for the faith. We're going to continue with that. This is going to be lecture number three on Luther's commentary on uh, the epistle to the Galatians. So we're just going to dive right into it. Um, I don't even think we're going to take a break in the middle of it. You all know this is listener supported radio. We'll catch you on the on the other end of the uh, of the lecture. And uh, without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Good morning. Um, again, I'm going to give a caveat. I'm in from Minnesota as of last night, so I'm on my body's on a different time zone. I'll uh, work with it, with it as well as I can. <clears throat> Our goal today is to finish chapter one. Next week, first half chapter two, the Sunday after that, finish chapter two, and then we'll be directly into the doctrinal guts of it in three and four. Uh, being at uh, an evangelical gathering of a few thousand people back in Minnesota the last couple of days, I noticed that at the White Horse Inn booth, what they were giving out hundreds and hundreds of was the promise of the gospel in the book of Galatians. You probably could get that as a freebie if you're interested uh, from the White Horse Inn because we were giving them out by the stacks. So it'll be one Lutheran against three reform guys, but that, that's usual. But anyway, uh, that's what they, one of the things we were passing out uh, in Minneapolis, um, gathering of... Uh, Piper fans, um, and I really don't know what that means, but several thousand of them, and many of them not even aware that we exist. So, uh, all right, we were in chapter 1, verse 8, <coughs> I'm going to go at a pretty good clip again, and uh, the fuller... Uh, 
outline is available to you through uh, New Reformation Press if you want it. Um, but uh, I did a sort of a, a compressed one for you. And uh, if you don't have access to that, I think I saw some extras there. All right, he said as he reached for his glasses. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. If you want to impress your friends and confound your enemies, the Greek word is anathema. And it's a prayer that the fire and judgment of God fall immediately. Paul doesn't use this much, but he does here. Didn't use it in Corinthians where all everything was a moral mess, but he does here where things are doctrinally um, being argued uh, in a very, very important way. Notice he calls the curse down on himself first. If I or an angel from heaven, or anybody else, but first, if I. Um, As any good debater, Paul curses himself first, uh, which enables him to then reprove others. But let the gospel never be overthrown. He concludes there is no other gospel than the one we, he himself, preach to you. There isn't a different gospel. The section 9 through 12, as we said before, so I, I, so I now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? That, he figures, should be evident to anybody um, who has any idea of any history of Paul. What his preaching of the gospel has done has earned only bitter persecution and hatred for himself and for others. So it should be obvious to you that by my preaching, I'm not seeking favor with men. I get just the opposite. That is, I teach that all men are wicked. Uh, I condemn the free will of man, his natural powers, wisdom, righteousness, Uh, self-invented religion, and whatever is best in uh, the world. And I say that there is nothing in us that can deserve the grace of God or the forgiveness of sins. Instead, I proclaim that we receive this grace solely and altogether by the mercy of God. That kind of preaching doesn't gain favor from men. They don't give you the key to the city for that. Um, And he thinks this is evident if they'll just think about it for a second. Um, Why do they not see that what I teach is from God and not from men? This is responding again to the false apostles or the false teachers. Who's Paul? He wasn't one of the original 12, you know. He never studied under the original 12, whereas we did. And there's one of him and there are lots of us. If I were seeking the favor of men, I would not condemn all their works. But I do condemn the works of men. Um, I declare that they do not become righteous by works or by circumcision, but solely by God's generosity, solely by his grace, his gratuitous favor, and by faith in Christ. 
and so I earn the bitter hatred of everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. That's clear evidence I'm not teaching a human doctrine. That I teach divine things is evident also from my preaching uh, the grace of mercy and uh, God alone. Uh, Luther parallels sayings from Christ from John 8 with this. I teach only what was divinely commanded of me. I don't glorify myself, but instead him who sent me and by it bring down upon myself enmity, indignation, uh, and all of that from both Jews and Gentiles. This is his argument, that's an, or another argument, that what he's preaching is divine, true, sure, and so forth, says Luther. Nor, says Luther, can there be any doctrine that is different from mine, that is Paul's, much less better. Um, Luther, uh, the same is the case with his doctrine in his day. And he parallels what he and the reformers got in return for preaching faith alone in Christ saves. Uh, nothing has changed. So the false apostles have to try to please and flatter men. It's all they've got. Enables them to glory, says Luther, in the flesh. Uh, and they escape persecution by it. How nice. Uh, there are a lot in our day, says Luther, who do the same thing. Try to please men. Um, and Paul says, I'm not trying to please men, and if you think about it, you'll know it. Just take a look at the case. If I were pleasing men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. There are other ways uh, that do please men. That's one that won't. So, 11 and 12. I would that you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it but uh, by or through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the central proposition of the chapter. And it goes all the way to the end of chapter 2, this claim of apostolicity on Paul's part. Not only has he become a believer uh, in what he used to persecute, but he claims to have received the whole gospel directly from heaven. Uh, now, no wonder people had questions about that. Uh, but he's in two chapters going to make it very, very clear that it's not um, a blind leap into the dark abyss to hold that he received it from heaven. He's building a case. Okay? I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ and confirms this with an oath. Then the story of the road to Damascus and the incident with Ananias the point here, Christ revealed himself to Paul, and Paul did not learn the gospel from Ananias. Um, he recites this to refute the slander that he's getting from the false apostles, that he was inferior somehow to them, had not received training from Christ or from the apostles. They did, they said. Um, and unfortunately, that argument from the false apostles had swayed the Galatians. Uh, Paul is up against being in a hole. He's down below zero with these people and wasn't before. He's having to climb his way back by building the case. He recites this to refute the slander of the Paul's, uh, uh, that the false apostles were laying out, that he was inferior. Um, 
Good God, says Luther, what dreadful and endless damage can be caused by one argument. In one moment, a man loses everything. Now, Luther believes that this argument has its hook in us already. Uh, that is, that we are going to earn our way in, or that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. He knows that's in us from Adam, and it's an easy hook, not a difficult one. But he remarks, good God, what dreadful and end endless damage can be caused by one argument. Luther, the question of justification is an elusive thing, not in itself, but so far as we are concerned, because we are unstable. Says Luther, even I struggle with it in hours of darkness. Even the mature Christian uh, experiences a slippery footing with this doctrine. The law raises a tumult. Even one passage overwhelms us and swamps us, makes us forget justification, forget grace, forget Christ, forget the gospel. Um, a good half of ourselves, our reason and our flesh, resists the gospel. Um, and that's why, says Luther, we continually teach this knowledge of Christ and faith alone as utterly a divine gift and not some human work. The argument, again, seems strong and cogent. Um, the apostles and the Holy Fathers taught thus and so. It's impossible that Christ would have permitted his church to be in error for centuries. Are you all by yourself wiser than so many saints and even the entire church? And so forth and so forth and so forth. So Luther parallels it with what uh, he hears in resistance to the gospel from his Roman polemicists. Who are you to dissent? You know, uh, in Luther's day, we have 800 theologians who disagree with your reading of Romans, Luther. Why should we opt for yours? And he answered, if those guys will just take off their Aristotle glasses and read the text, they'll come to the same conclusion I do. Now, that got nowhere, but he was right anyway. Hmm? So all of those arguments against. The conscience, he says, becomes terrified and despairs. And unless we come back to our senses uh, we, and say something like, whether St. Cyprian, Ambrose, Augustine, St. Peter, Paul, or John, even an angel from heaven, still I know for certain that what I teach is not from men but from God. The doctrine of the gospel attributes everything to God, everything good, and nothing to us. We have an ambivalence at least toward that, uh, usually worse. Uh, so he tackles, but the fathers are holy, the church is holy. He says, granted, granted, the problem's in us. And the answer is in scripture uh, on this basic one. Um, even though we incline against it, we've got to find our way back to it. Okay? So says Luther with Paul, we boast that we teach the pure gospel of Christ. Um, and he says, so, so should others. So much for the central proposition. Then he goes to backing it up with historical events, 13 or 14. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. 
He argues he had defended his Phariseeism and his Judaism more vigorously than almost anyone else. Uh, steadfastly, um, if you take a look at the history. And if the righteousness of the law had been worth anything, Paul would have remained a Pharisee. He discovered that the righteousness of the law was not. Uh, it was the enemy with regard to justification. Um, and that's what he's trying to argue the false apostles are trying to lead them back to something prior to when they, Paul had preached the gospel to them. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of the fathers. Um, Paul calls the holy law of Moses the traditions of my fathers in the sense that they were handed down and received as a legacy. I was very zealous for these. Uh, in Philippians 3, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to, a, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. And Luther paraphrases him. I was zealous for the, uh, these things. Luther parallels. Nobody was a more zealous monk than I. I was as zealous for the papistic law and traditions as the fathers uh, ever were, defending them not only as holy, but even as necessary for salvation. When I was a monk, I suffered greater trouble in vigils and fasts than those who were persecuting me. I was superstitious to the point of delirium, insanity, and to the jeopardy of my body and my health. All these things I did with great zeal. Um, I adored the Pope sincerely, and so forth and so forth. 15 through 17, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. As if Paul were saying, says Luther, it is only the unspeakable kindness of God that he has not only spared me, a good-for-nothing, a criminal, a blasphemer, and a sacrilegious man, but that he's also given me the knowledge of salvation, given me his spirit, Christ his son, the apostolic office, etc. He set me apart before I was born for this, um, that I should rage against his church, and afterwards he'd mercifully call me back from my cruelty and blasphemy by his sheer grace into the way of truth. In brief, when I'd not even been born, I was already in the sight of God an apostle. So, Paul here abolishes all deserving, and he uses himself as the key example. He ascribes to God the glory and to himself just confusion. Great guide. God had predestined me uh, when I was but an embryo, and after being born, God still supported me, even though I was covered with innumerable and horrible iniquities and evils. And in this condition, he forgave my infinite and horrible sins by his sheer grace. It's like Romans 5.8. Maybe, maybe, maybe a guy might die for a friend, maybe. But God evidences his love toward us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, at our worst, 
He gives us Christ at, a, at our worst. Uh, that's worth remembering when you're really in the darkness. Um, Luther will pound away. It's for sinners he came. Sounds like you qualify. Huh? At our worst, okay? Called me through his grace, revealed his son to me. Again, grace alone. The doctrine was given to Paul, the gospel. Um, and again, Luther adds, this is easy to say for most of us, but in times of conscience and in practice, it's horribly difficult. Now, if the gospel is the revelation of the Son of God as it really is, then it certainly does not demand works or threaten death or terrify the conscience. It shows the Son who is not the law nor a work, just the opposite. This, of course, does not convince the papists, says Luther. They make a law of charity, of the gospel, the law of the gospel. Um, this gives Lutherans a charley horse between the ears. Huh? It's like the Mormons, you know, who obey the gospel as if it's a law, you know. Oh, what? Okay. Uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember, irresistible force and immovable object. What the gospel teaches is a divine work given to me by sheer grace, Paul claims. And Luther says, notice this is taught, first of all, by the external word, uh, only then inwardly. He's watching out for the schwermer, the, the uh, enthusiasts here. In order that I might preach Christ amongst the, uh, the Gentiles. Uh, Paul has been called properly the apostle to the Gentiles, though he preached Christ to Jews as well. So says Luther, in a few words, we have a summary of Paul's whole theology here. That is, I refuse to burden the Gentiles with the law. I am the apostle to them, and I am not their lawgiver. That's all aimed at the false apostles. You Galatians never heard me preach the righteousness of the law or of works that belongs to Moses. Never. It is my office to bring you Galatians the gospel. The implication, don't listen to those who bring you a supposed better version, new, improved version. Any teacher who teaches the law with regard to justification. Boy, do we get questions on this in Minneapolis. Um, I'll tell you just one story, not of a Lutheran, but it'll get the idea across. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Congregationalist, England, solid as a rock evangelical. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones took it as a test or a bellwether um, if some elderly lady came up and shook his hand at the end of some service and said, Doctor, who's an MD? Uh, Doctor, you know I love you. And he said, I know. But what you were preaching tonight is dangerous. Hmm? antinomian. Christ is sufficient, and she was bothered, you know, but it's really dangerous, that sort of stuff. Now, Jones, inwardly, he thanked her. This has happened not just once, but a whole bunch of times. He thanked her for her counsel, and inwardly went, yes, so I did preach Christ. <laughs> it confirmed that he had preached the gospel that she would say that. 
doctor, are you, that's dangerous, don't you think? Huh? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All right. I did not confer with flesh and blood. Okay? This is going to be key. I didn't confer with the apostles in Damascus. Ask anybody. Um, I didn't ask anyone there to teach me the gospel. I didn't yet go to Jerusalem, to Peter and the others, to learn the gospel from them. I began to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. That's Acts chapter 9. Um, the Arabia we have to leave as a blank because he doesn't tell us. My guess, and it's only a guess, is rereading his whole Old Testament in light of Christ being the promised one. Gave the whole Old Testament text, you know, a whole new, you know, a shift of axis that Jesus was the promised Messiah and uh, didn't uh, kick the, the Romans out of Jerusalem and go to war. And my guess is, but it's just a guess. Paul is arguing here, verse 17, I did not learn the gospel from any human being, not even from the apostles themselves. I didn't get permission from them. Luther says, this history is a refutation of the argument that the false apostles had been using against Paul. In the same way, we can boast we did not receive our doctrine from the Pope. Sacred scripture um, uh, brings it to us and brings us a gospel that's solely the generosity of God and has nothing to do with our worthiness. We don't have any. Okay, one eighteen through 24. Then, only then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Again, Luther, all of Paul's words are here put in such a way to prove his gospel was not from men. He granted that he was in Jerusalem after three years in Damascus and Arabia. He granted as well that he had lived after the manner of the Jews, but only among the Jews. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. I was made all things to all men, that I might by all means see some saved. He went to Jerusalem of his own accord to see Peter, not to learn what the gospel was from him or the other apostles. Um... He knew that uh, Peter was not his master, nor was James. Um, Luke tells us that Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles, told them that Paul had seen the Lord and that he'd spoken to Paul, and Paul had preached Christ in Damascus. Luther, why does Paul repeat so often that he did not learn his gospel from men or even from the apostles? Simply, to persuade the churches of Galatia that his gospel was the true gospel. Without this point, he could not have refuted the false apostles, their charges. We're as good as Paul. We were pupils of the apostles more than he. Uh, he's only one person. We are many. Therefore, we surpass him in authority and in number. This isn't empty bragging, says Luther, on Paul's part. It's a serious matter of whether all the churches would be preserved in the true doctrine of grace 
or whether it be lost to all of them. Remember, contrast this with Corinth, where so many of the problems were party spirit and morals. You don't find this kind of thing in the Corinthian epistles or the others. Only here. And it's as angry as Paul ever got and laid to papyrus. Uh, if, if we could just remember that. Now, here's a place where Missouri sort of gets an A. Huh? I, I always look for those. Um, don't press me. Um, but in, in, when we're at our best, we act as if false doctrine is more reprehensible than lousy morals. Yeah. And we're following this in doing that. Now, we may not do it very well, um, and we may do it stumblingly, but at Missouri, Missouri at its best does this. Not just polemics, though important as sometimes those are. Huh? We have Arians right across the street, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, not just that, uh, but even within the Christian circle. But the point here is that Galatia, Paul's anger in writing the Galatian epistle has to do with some new gospel replacing the real one, the true one. And he's going to go at it 68 ways from Friday. He's not arguing his apostolicity for the sake of power, glory, think election. Huh? Mm. Here it's the gospel is at stake. And uh, God bless Missouri when, when it does that well and right. I'm sort of proud once in a while that I belong to a church that's willing to lose nine-tenths of its seminary faculty, if necessary, 1973, and build it from nothing. But you are not going to teach biblical criticism and take our paycheck for doing it. And I go, hmm, what's the name of that church again? Um... I remember uh, when I was visiting my brother-in-law in Louisville, he was in dental school, and I decided to go over to the Southern Baptist Seminary. <clears throat> thought I'd sit in. Louisville. One of their top. Al Mohler's the president now. I decided to go sit in. So I went and asked the powers, do you mind if I sit in on a class or two? Not at all. Help yourself. Um, if anybody gives you any guff, have them phone me, so forth. Wide open. <clears throat> so I go listen in on a, in a class, and the fellow teaching it occupied the Billy Graham chair there at Louisville. And I sat in the back, and what did I hear? So help me, what did I hear? It was Carl Bart without telling them that it was Carl Bart. Now, Carl Bart in the 20th century was not nearly as off base as many others, say the Lutheran Boltmann. But it wasn't historic Reformed Orthodoxy either. It was another breed, later termed Neo-Orthodoxy. And I thought, my gosh, I'm listening to a guy, a professor in the Billy Graham chair, and he's training young, young Southern Baptist seminarians right out of BART and not telling them. Um, you know, make note, the more important thing 
The more important thing is the doctrinal, and we incline to the moral, just like that. And uh, th this, this should be something that we sort of drill into ourselves, that to Paul, the more important thing was the loss of the gospel of grace in Galatia than all of the moral problems in Corinth. And say, I want to belong to a church like that. Huh? Where it isn't, you know, Luther had said to Leo in one of his prefaces, Leo, I know you have bad advisors, uh, or you wouldn't have done a lot of the things that are going on, but your advisors, so forth and so forth. It was fairly typical of the age. But in it, he said, there have been lots of reformers in the church, almost all of them moral. But you, Leo, are never going to forget my name. And the reason is because I'm not a moral reformer. I'm going down to the tap root where the trouble is, the trouble's in the doctrine. So, God bless a church that says no, and there are reasons no. No, we're not going there. We don't think you should either. Christ is going to be obscured. The gospel's going to be lost, and you're too stupid to see it. But that's where it's going, the direction you're headed. As for me and my house, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's always centrally got to do with, is Christ's death enough to save? And the answer is either yes or no. If Christ's death is enough to save, just embraced by simple faith, I trust that, not anything in me, that's the kind of church you want to belong to. I was telling some of the evangelicals in Minneapolis, uh, Sunday school's a dangerous place. Uh, you don't want your kids in a Sunday school that's basically using the text of the Bible to teach morals. That's what I grew up in. It'll make you an unbeliever, that child an unbeliever, by the time he's 16. And you'll wonder, how did this happen? Well, you caused it by having a Sunday school like that that gave him the idea that Christianity is basically a moral remaking. Um, flee from that. Absolutely flee. Now, if you've got uh, yourself, your husband or wife, or your child, your uh, adolescent child, are wondering whether the whole thing is true, then you ought to have a Sunday school that, are, that addresses that. Is this true or is it not? And do it early, not late. Maybe junior high, what Kurt is doing here. Uh, but early on. But the last reason you want to lose your children to some sect or, or to unbelief, the last reason it should be is because you set it up and sent them to a Sunday school to turn them into an Eagle Scout morally. The worst of reasons. Let everybody else say that the Lutherans are really, really strong on the doctrine of justification, but, and they said the same thing in Luther's day, they're, they're like wet spaghetti on the Christian life, you know? I can't teach you anything about that. It was Wesley's impression, too. So we're here to continue or finish what they never do. We're going to spend our time on the Christian life. Um... Now, when I had students like that at Westmont, and they were in full victory mode, there was no way in. 
Uh, there was no chink in the armor. Everything was wonderfulness and soaring. But when the thing cracks, as it will, I said, when it, just in case later on, if that cracks, before you go to atheism, go to a Reformation church. And there's a reason for it. The reason is that a Reformation church, particularly Lutheran, is going to know beforehand that your Christian life isn't working the way it should, that it's sometimes in a pile on the floor, the hurrier I go, the behinder I get, and it'll preach Christ to you in that. Where you're at your worst, and that's not available on every street corner. It has to do with theology. It's got to be thought through. Uh, there's a reason um, for the Lutheran pastor subscribing to the Book of Concord, because this is done more rigorously through passages than any time since St. Paul. So, uh, again, an appeal uh, on my part to say Galatians is very, very important, and it has to do with the preservation of a gospel that's really a gospel and not allowing something to be tacked onto it that ruins it. You can, you can geld the gospel by adding things, not just by denying. You can geld it by adding to it, and that's exactly what was at issue in Galatia. We're just going to add a little to it. Moses. Okay? So, discursus by Luther. Why does Paul repeat so often that he did not learn his gospel from men, even from the apostles? To persuade the churches of Galatia that Paul's gospel was truly the word of God. And to refute what they were saying. Verse 20. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Again, an oath before God, he adds. Why? So that the churches would believe him, believe his report of the history of the whole thing, and so that the false teachers could not charge, who knows whether what Paul is saying is true. Being held in contempt is, uh, among his own Galatian converts, necessary that he add an oath that he was telling the truth. Luther, if the apostles had, apostles had such mighty adversaries then, what marvel is it um, if the like happens to us, who are not worthy to be compared with the apostles? Um, it might appear that Paul is swearing in a trivial matter, but examination will show it was not at all trivial. Very weighty and grave. 21-22. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Paul again trying to convince them that before and after he had seen the apostles, he was always a preacher of the gospel, which he'd received directly from the risen Christ, though he had not been a pupil of any of the apostles, not from man. 22 through 24 I was still not known by sight to the churches of Christ in Judea. They only heard it said, he who once persecuted us is, not preaching, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. He adds this, says Luther, to complete the story. 
after meeting Peter, Paul went to preach in Syria and Cilicia, ended up winning the approval of all the churches in Judea. He makes an appeal here to the testimony of all the churches, not only in those in Damascus, Arabia, Syria, and Cilicia, but also to the church in Judea. Said Paul, I preach the same faith which I had before persecuted, and they glorified God because of me. Not that Paul had taught that circumcision and the law of Moses ought to be kept, but for his preaching that faith in Christ sola justifies before the holy God and for edifying the churches by his ministry in the gospel. All right, uh, that brings us to the end of one. We're going to be doing similar things in two. Uh, Stay with it. I'll do it as, as quickly as I can. And uh, but the, it's the con- when, when Luther's doing this, he's doing the content of Paul arguing for two chapters his genuine apostolic office so that the Galatians will listen to the true gospel and not get seduced into something that isn't a gospel. Okay? Then in 3 and 4, we're at the doctrinal guts of the whole thing. You'll say, oh, yeah, okay, I remember that. Yes. Okay. Thanks for your attention. Questions? Is there any uh, documentation regarding the, uh, I guess, follow-up from this letter? In other words, after he writes this blistering letter to Galatia, is there any documentation that says, oh, yeah, the church did this after this letter? Do they, do they expand? Do the thing uh, fall apart? Is there any, what's the follow-up after all that? Yeah, I'd, ha- the- I'd have to look to the same historians to whom I'd send you, to Eusebius and others. Um, I, the same books I'd go to, I can refer you to. Um, early post-apostolic stuff as to the status of things. I also gave you a sort of an introduction from two different sources, that first pack of paper. One was an introduction to the book from the classic New Bible Commentary. That's evangelical, but good evangelical from years ago. Um, And then I also gave you a little bit of the historical stuff with that outline from the Dallas uh, Semprof. Uh, different as we are from a place like Dallas or Talbot, uh, when those guys are outlining a book, they respect the book as God's word, so they do the work carefully. Uh, that much we can give them. Um, but you might check those that were in that first pack. That was why I passed them out, see if there's anything there. Other than that, it's a standard church history, particularly Uh, post-apostolic, what happened in the second century after the last of the apostles had died. It really makes sense what you say about the difference between Lutherans and evangelicals in terms of doctrine being much more important than morality, but then where would you say morality fits in from a Lutheran perspective? Um, It's all over in the Book of Concord. You'll find it because the standard attack from Rome was that the Lutherans are antinomian. They're against law. Now, we are against law in column A with regard to justification, but that doesn't mean we've got a blank in column B. The thing you want to note or tell yourself is, why do I incline to column B so much? Why is that? Why is that? All my questions seem to come in column B. I wonder why that is. Well, it's the old Adam. Huh? 
We have a we have a great doctrine of the Christian life. Probably the best short source I could give you is one of those compilations of five views of from InterVarsity. And one of them is called Five Views of Spirituality. And the Lutheran they invited to write one of the chapters was Gerhard Ferdy. Uh, my son at Whitehorse Inn posted that on his cubicle wall. He was in a sea of Calvinists. Um, but Gerhard Ferdy, in that chapter in that book, I would run it off for you, but I'd probably be breaking copyright law, but you can chase it down. Ferdy is spelled with that Scandinavian slash O. Uh, sometimes it's taken out and out, so it looks like Ford with an E on the end. Um, Gerhard Ferdy, he was, he was uh, best buddies with Jim Nestingen at Luther Seminary. They represented historic Lutheran orthodoxy in a faculty that hated their guts. All their sections would fill up, and the, and the sections by the, the feminist theologians and the this kind of theologians, students didn't sign up for. That really made the rest of them hate them. Now, once in a while, something in the left kingdom goes well. They threw Dr. Nestingen out, though he was tenured. Jim's wife's a lawyer. He went to her and she said, let me get a lawyer for you. And he sued their ever-loving socks off. They will never forget his name. <laughs> he won that thing in secular court and cleaned their ever-loving clocks. Praise God. <laughs> yeah, Jim Nestingen, um, Gerhard Ferdy, and still there at Luther, Steve Paulson, doing historic Lutheran orthodoxy. And I'll go anywhere, anytime, speak uh, alongside Jim Nestingen or uh, Steve Paulson and the Missouri Synod can... Uh, um, do whatever they do. <laughs> Is there any record of Paul's three years in none? That's why I said I'm speculating? Yeah, that, and that was good speculation as far as the Old Testament, him finding Christ possibly through that. Very good. I think it's a good guess, but I have no text. I think it's a good guess. Good grief. He's here, and he's here, and he's here, and he's here in the Psalms, and in Genesis, and in Isaiah. And so I think it's a good guess, but it's still a guess. All right, next time we'll ch tackle the beginning of chapter 2. I'll have another outline for you, Lord willing. And then the guts of the course in 3 and 4. Fantastic lecture. Mm. So what do you think? 
I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. All of them were saved by grace through faith by what Christ has done. Amen.